Turn in your Bibles to Judges, chapter 7. Judges, chapter 7. As you turn there, and I pull myself together here, let me just put a thought into your mind here. The most dreaded job interview question that we often face, many of you have faced it, you children need to prepare for it. It's that question, what are your strengths and weaknesses? We do such a great job, right, of talking about our strengths. Usually have a list of three or four of those that we can rattle off. And when it comes to our weakness, we want to present it in such a way that, you know, it's not really a weakness. It's just a, it's an overstrength. You know, we, we overemphasize how committed we are to our place of work. And it's just hard to balance sometimes, you know, our free time. And so the, we want our employer to know how, how committed we are to this job opportunity. It is a difficult question to answer, and I do think that it applies somewhat to this passage because what if the employer was actually seeking to only hire those who had genuine weaknesses? was looking for those who were weak and recognized their weakness and could admit their weakness and seek him for strength, right? It would show, it would in fact magnify the ability of the employer to build up the employees, to train them up, right? And so we're thinking here in terms of God's call upon us, right? When he calls us to himself, the first thing we have to do is see our weakness, to see our need, our depravity apart from him. And only then can we see the gift that he offers as being gracious and necessary for our salvation. Well, the book of Judges traces the canonization of Israel, as we've called it. It's been a while since I used that word, but the canonization, it's this continued spiral downward of the people of God to become like their Canaanite neighbors, begin worship those false idols, well, not even their true idols, <laughs> false gods, right, to become idolaters. And it continues to repeat itself every generation or two in this book. In fact, some of them overlap one another. And that was the case with Shamgar. But when the people cry out to God for help, he sends them a deliverer. Now we're in the middle of this deliverance that's being um, brought to the people of God through Gideon. God has made it abundantly clear to Gideon and to the 32,000 troops who are now with him on this threshing floor that he is sovereign over Baal. They had forsaken God to worship Baal and Asherah, and now in this fleece test that Gideon has laid out before all of these people, all of these witnesses have seen who truly is sovereign over the weather, over the dew, and it is the Lord God. So the remarkable transformations that have taken place in all of them including Gideon, but in all of these troops at this point, can only be credited to the work of God's Spirit. 
that we saw very specifically clothed Gideon back in chapter 6, verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites came out to follow him along with some other tribes. But here we'll see what happens when the odds of victory for the people of God go from bad to worse. And what happens when their likelihood for victory over the Midianites, it already looked bleak, and it only gets worse in this chapter. In fact, what we'll see, though, is God's victory through them, despite their weakness. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter in the narrative of Gideon that shows us even when your people are at their weakest point, even when they feel utterly hopeless, you fill them with strength by your spirit. You fill them with hope and faith to persevere and to move forward in the divine mission that you've given them. Lord, work that same miracle in our own hearts. Those of us who, who struggle in temptation and sin, who, who fight the flesh daily, Lord, we need that same kind of reminder, that same hope through this passage, Lord. And so bring yourself glory as you do a work of sanctification in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me. Judges chapter 7 will begin. We'll, we'll read one, verse 1 through verse 23. So we'll stop a little bit before the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, <clears throat> and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned. And 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his, uh, to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, 
Go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid go to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east laid, lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three, or the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, Toward Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mahola uh, by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first thing I want to point out from this passage is verses 1 through 8, speaking of how God gets the glory, right? As Gideon positions his army for attack, he's, he's laid out this fleece, he's done that test, and God has proven himself to be present and powerful among the people, and he now is positioning this army right across from, from the Midianite camp over the spring of Herod, right? So they look out across and they see a multitude, an abundance of troops waiting, And this is when God decides to reduce Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300. It would be less than 1% of its original strength, which in comparison to the Midianite army 
was only originally 25%, right? 32,000 against 135,000. And I come up with that number in the next chapter, chapter 8, verse 10. It says, Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. So 135,000 men, now at this point in chapter 8, only 15,000 of them are left. This is the odds here. 300 against 135,000. That's one Israelite soldier for every 450 encamped against them. And people still criticize Gideon for being afraid, for having to go into the camp and receive an assurance that God had given the Midianites into his hand. It's absurd, I think, in terms of these numbers. God makes it clear that he is the one who gets the glory for the victory. That's what he directly states, right? There's, there's too many of you. You're going to take the credit for this. If I let all of these 32,000 troops fight, they're going to think, man, I'm good. Four against one, and I took them out. They would not give God the credit. And so he eliminates their potential boasting and he ensures that they won't take any credit, that they'll only be able to praise him for the victory. And so this first method of reduction is from 32,000 to 10,000, and it's really an application of what we read in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. And the officers shall speak further. These are laws concerning warfare given to Moses. So Moses here in Deuteronomy is reiterating these laws to the people as he is preparing himself to die. He says this, and the officer shall speak further to the people and say, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellow melt like his own. Now, what happened in between being on top of the threshing floor and having this confidence that God is present and powerful and then going in to, uh, or going onto this mountain that's uh, across from the Midianite camp. Well, that's exactly what happened. These 32,000 have now gathered in a place where they see that they're outnumbered vastly, four to one. And so a third of them, a little over a third of them, begin to tremble. 22,000 of them decide to return. Notice Gideon is not one of them. So we do know in a little bit he'll be fearful. That's why he goes with his servant, Pira. But he's not at the level of these 22,000 who are trembling. He's, he's not at that level of fear at this point. So God goes on to give a second method of reduction from 10,000 to 300. And there is absolutely no precedence whatsoever for this method. Can't find it anywhere else in Scripture. But of course, that doesn't prevent some commentaries from speculating about why this method was chosen. And it's a little bit silly, but some of them would say that they were, those who laughed like dogs were the most prepared. They were anticipating their enemy, right? They were keeping their hands free. 
which is it's very confusing, even as you read it in English here. Different translations put it differently. Is it the, the people who, we know it's the lappers from the kneelers. We know that's the distinction. But those who lap, it also says they use their hands. They put the, the water to their mouths and they lap out of their hands. But then it says those others kneel and drink. So it's just hard to, to, to grasp the, the precise interpretation of what's going on. But we know God distinguishes between 300 lappers and the rest who kneel, 9,700 who kneel. God isn't searching for 300 men with military instincts. This isn't some determining test for them to see who's really capable of outmaneuvering the enemy. He's selecting the smallest portion to remain, and I think this is just simpler than drawing straws, basically. And it could have been any method to reduce the number down to such an insignificant number that the people would know we have nothing to do with this victory. Well, how does that relate to us? I, I think in very subtle ways, we do the same thing, don't we? Right? We, we take some of the credit for our victories. We think, I've, I've earned this one. And the essence of giving all glory to God is emptying ourselves of any credit. And so we're prone to wanting attention. Parents, you didn't have to teach your kids to say, hey, look at me. Mom, Dad, watch this. They, we want attention from birth. And so our fallen nature doesn't use success as an opportunity to point to God. Right? We want the glory for ourselves. And yet it's God who's the only one deserving of the glory, right? He's the only reason why we experience any success in life. And so God gets the glory, but what does he give to Gideon? And through Gideon to the rest of the troops, he gives them strength. Which is now 0.2% the size. 300 minutes, 0.2% the size of the Midianite army. And how is he going to give them strength? Well, we see in verses 9 through 15 this opportunity for Gideon to go into the camp. Uh, God tells Gideon to attack, and it, but yet if he's afraid to go down now, to go down with Pura, his servant, and to listen. And so he and Pura enter the Midian, Midian's camp, and they notice an abundance of soldiers, like the sand on the shore, like locusts in abundance, sand that is on the seashore camels without number. They see all of this. And then they overhear one man describing his nightmare to another. It was the attack of the giant bread roll. It's, the, it's that nightmare that all of us have experienced, that all of us have woken up just filled with sweat because of this giant bread roll that rolled down and took out a tent. And of course, the dream whisperer acknowledges that this has to be the sword of Gideon. I, I, I do think there's some humor here that we sense God's 
humor from this passage in the way that he brings about the strength of Gideon, giving him confidence, it, it, it almost sounds absurd. What, what brought fear into the Midianite camp? And so apparently this, this interpretation, this dream spreads really quickly because Gideon goes back with Pira, calls the, the army to, to stand up, to get ready so that they might return into battle. And he's strengthened. But actually, before he does that, what does it say? Verse 15, and soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. So before returning to camp, he worships God. Think about the emotional roller coaster that Gideon has been on. He's been called by the angel of the Lord. He's been called to tear down Baal's altar. That was at his father's house. Erect an altar to the Lord in its place. Take the bull of his father that was intended to be sacrificed to Baal and sacrifice it to the Lord. And then he was called to gather the troops. He was clothed by the Spirit to blow the trumpet and gather these 32,000 troops. He lays out the fleece. I mean, it's, it's up and down. It's up and down throughout this narrative. Most recently being reduced down to 300 troops. And yet he has now this assurance of victory through a Midianite's dream. And so his worship would have been filled with Intense emotion, right? Gratitude, tears of relief. And in fact, from this point forward, you really don't hear anything of, of Gideon's fear. It doesn't come back into the narrative at all. He doesn't have any more hesitation. So God understood Gideon's emotional estate. Psalm 103, verse 14, we read this, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows your struggles. He knows your fears. He knows your doubts. And he responds with compassion by providing a powerful experience of hope. That's, that's what our Westminster Shorter Catechism says, question 10. What are God's works of providence? The answer is God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. It's God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures. That would include the Midianite soldiers. There wasn't a soldier in this land who wasn't under the sovereign control of God. And that's proven here by the fact that a Midianite dream is what brings victory to the people of God. None of them were outside of God's sovereign control. And Gideon knew this, I think, but now he's observed it. And he's been confirmed in his faith. He's been established in his divine mission. He's been built up 
for the call that God has placed upon him. And so fully assured in this truth, he moves forward in victory. And the plan, as absurd as the dream is, the plan is just as absurd. What does he do? He grabs some trumpets and some jars and he puts some torches in the jars and he hands them to people, to the 300 men. And they're to shout, they're to surround the Midianite camp and to follow Gideon's actions, to blow the trumpet and to shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. This wasn't about Gideon sharing the glory for the Lord and, and for Gideon. Make sure you give me some credit here. That's not what it's about. It's about reminding everyone who's in this Midianite camp, this is, this is Gideon's army surrounding us. This is the sword that is about to devour us, that's about to destroy us. And so it links the nightmare to its interpretation. And then chaos ensues, in fact, in verses 19 through 22. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch, they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars they held in their left hands and torches and in their right hands the trumpets uh, to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran and they cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. Remember these 300 men, what did they have in their hands? Trumpets, jars, and torches. That's it. They're not ready with sword in hand. And so God uses Midianites' own weapons against themselves. Therefore, the sword of Gideon is, in fact, Midianite swords turned upon one another. This is a fulfillment here of what what God told Gideon would happen in chapter 6, verse 16. And the Lord said, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. It was almost easier than that. He didn't even have to fight one man. They fought each other. And then verse 23, to conclude, it says, The men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Well, what's happening here? This is the the reserves who had been sent home previously. These are the people who have have gone home either trembling or, or because they kneeled. And so they're not present surrounding the Gideon's, or Midianite army. And so they are called out here to basically collect the spoils to accomplish this victory. And so the tribes of Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh are summoned. I'm not sure why Zebulun does not come out. Zebulun's missing, and we'll see next week that Ephraim enters into the picture. But why go through all of the trouble of whittling down the army basically to involve those same troops again? What's God doing here? What is God's purpose in all of this? I don't think it was to restrict anyone's involvement. 
but it was to raise everyone's awareness about who was behind this victory. Once again, now that they've been assured that it is God who is doing this work, now they all get to join in and experience the reward of God's work. Is that not a a picture of the gospel? We get the reward for God's redemptive work that he accomplishes on our behalf. The test of the fleece here is being fulfilled. God is present and powerful among his people. And so God deliberately chooses weak people, aware of their weaknesses, no skill required. And he clothes them in the spirit and he transforms their weaknesses into strength. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 34. We've read verse 32 many times in reference to Gideon here. And what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, and became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. See, when you live to glorify God, your trials become opportunities. Your weaknesses become strengths. And notice the trials and the weaknesses, they remain. They didn't disappear. They don't go away. Just because they've been clothed by the Spirit and just because you've been indwelled by the Spirit doesn't mean your trials and weaknesses go away. Those who recognize their weaknesses and are willing to face them is exactly the type of person that the Spirit draws into the covenant community. And even that itself is a work of the Spirit, right? That you can recognize your weaknesses. The person who can't see their flaws has no need for God. And so it's not that you experience struggle, but it's who struggles with you. Are, you. are you united to Christ? Are you united to his body, the church? Do you rest in him? So God gets the glory through our weakness. We get the strength through his providence. And then we get the victory through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther in a song we'll sing in response, said, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. So faith is not the absence of fear. It is fear that is properly placed. Listen to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear 
him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And maybe that sounds like another picture of God's wrath, and, and it is. But that kind of fear will always lead to the glory of God and to your salvation because it is properly placed. It is not fearing man. It is fearing the one who is truly sovereign over every man. And so let us give him the glory that he alone is due. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.